Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Sending a massive hug to everyone in Tier 3. What a strange, strange year this continues to be. Socially distanced hug, elbow hug. Yes, absolutely sorry. I'm not coming into the tier, but I'm sending love from afar. Big week for you, Dolkins. Sorry, I never, I don't really know how to broach this subject without sounding beggy. Pandy, can you do it for me? So Dolly's book, Everything I Know About... Sorry, um, Dolly's book, Ghosts, comes out on Thursday. Now, if you're looking for a book about the supernatural, you will be disappointed, two stars. But if you are looking for a tender, poignant, whip-smart, fresh, unique debut novelist voice then you should buy Ghosts because it's really bloody brilliant and it's already getting sensational reviews, um, which I am thrilled about because it's really bloody good. So you should buy it. And I'm not biased at all. Hashtag spot. Paid partnership. (laughs) Out on Thursday. (laughs) Please buy it. 22.99. I'm joking. It's not. (laughs) It's 6.99. Oh, I don't know how much it is. Just buy it, please. Make the old gal happy. Hope you enjoy it. It's $14.99, except if it's discounted and then it will be less. How is your spreading of your dying out word going? What word did you take last week? Boogie. How's that going? Yeah, I mean, I use that quite a lot anyway, depressingly. How about yours? Nincompoop. Nincompoop, yeah. It's going really well. My two-year-old can say it now. Nincompoop. Oh, I miss her. I found some of the responses to that list very, very funny. One 24-year-old wrote to me, on behalf of all 24-year-olds, what on earth are these words? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, you're not alone, love. (laughs) 40%. I tell you what, Pada, speaking of words, I'm not sure if people have been sending this to you. Someone's gone viral on Twitter with a tweet that says something like, I've just heard the word Panny D and now I want to die or whatever. And it's like really picked up heat and it's got like thousands and thousands of retweets. And people keep fucking tagging me in it and going, oh, I think Dolly came up with this. And so like, stop darkening my door. Yeah, I was always I was always keen when people mixed up our voices that they knew who had said Panny D and who had not. <laughs> I know. And then bless, there are loads of high-low listeners because everyone, some people were like, oh, this is lol. And some people were like, this is hideous. And then loads of high-low listeners were like, I think Dolly came up with this, but it was definitely to be ironic. And then I was just like, this is the problem with the internet. How do I prove irony? I can't prove irony to anyone. Do you think you did come up with it? No, I'm sure I didn't. I'm sure I didn't. But can you please stop, all darling listeners, I love you so much. Big kisses to all of you. But can you please stop tagging me in that viral tweet? Because I just, I just, I just stop darkening my door. I don't want that responsibility on my shoulders. <laughs> the gods of current affairs bestowed us with a real treat this week because I think they knew we all needed cheering up. Can you guess what paragraph of the New York Times I'm going to read for you, Panda? I'm not that well versed <laughs> in the debut edition. <laughs> No, hit me with it. So this was in regards to Trump's discharge from hospital and recovery from COVID. In several phone calls last weekend from the presidential suite at Walter Reed National Military Medical Centre, Mr Trump shared an idea he was considering. When he left the hospital, he wanted to appear frail at first when people saw him, according to people with knowledge of the conversations. But underneath his button-down dress shirt, he would wear a Superman T-shirt which he would reveal as a symbol of strength when he ripped open the top layer. He ultimately did not go ahead with the stunt. Oh, sweet Lord. I know. Sweet baby Jesus. It's like he's a WWF wrestler. I just can't... Even, like, this feels almost post-parody. Anyway, thank you very much to the gods of current affairs for giving us that. And a delicious piece of Hollywood history that resurfaced last week... Cary Grant and Clark Gable, two legends of the silver screen. What did they do together every Christmas? Okay, I love this. 
you know I love a challenge like this. Made eggnog, stuffed each other's stockings. Oi, oi, sailor. Um, sang carols together. Took a bath with red and green bubble bath. <laughs> they met once a year to exchange unwanted monogram presents. <laughs> that is fantastic. Isn't that so good? I loved that. That is really, really good. I really love that. What does the silver screen mean? Does it mean you have to have grey hair or is it from a certain era? Don't think it's, don't think it's the grey hair. <laughs> no, I don't uh, just looking up, why was it called the silver screen? The term silver screen comes from the actual silver or reflective aluminium content embedded in the material that made up the screen's highly reflected surface. So is, did it go golden age, silver screen... And if so, are we now in like the brass? No, I, I think I think plastic. I think they are they are disparate metals. I think I think they're metaphorical. I think the golden age was a metaphorical metal, and the silver screen was technical. And I don't think we're in the bronze, the bronze age of cinema. No, I thought maybe the brass, the brass age, the brass age, cinephiles. Please do let us know if we are in the Tupperware age of cinema. Speaking of the big screen, have you seen that The Witches by Roald Dahl is being remade? No! Anne Hathaway has taken on the role that terrified every millennial woman, including yours truly, played by Angelica Houston. Let have a little watch of the trailer. I've sent it to you. Welcome. What would you do if there were mice? Learning all around this hotel. I would call the exterminator. You see, girls? He would exterminate those brats. Uh, rats. We would exterminate the rats. Oh my God, that looks so fucking good. Octavia Spencer, Stanley Tucci. What a cast. Do you think it can compare? I can barely remember the original. I must have watched it when I was a kid. But I just think that's such a good cast. I cannot wait to watch that. I watched it, I think, every day for two years, maybe. Did I was you? completely obsessed with it and utterly, utterly terrified. It is the most terrifying film. So you're not obviously someone that watched it loads, but there are, if you no. ask among your friends, you'll come across... I feel like you come across people who that really does still haunt them. Like they'll still have nightmares about it. Little panda sitting and watching it every day, even though it scared you so much. Yeah, I used to hide behind the sofa. Such a little masochist, even at such a young age. <laughs> Why do you keep punishing yourself? For years and years and years, I didn't know Angelica Houston as like the really foxy actress, you know, famous for the debonair life she led with Jack... Nicholson, I knew her as the witch. I didn't think she'd ever done another film. That was her. That was her some existence. Maybe I'll maybe I'll rewatch the original before I, I I truly it says it's out October 22nd. I truly can't wait to watch that. This week's uh, Normie Gone Viral. This one's sure to cheer you up. Normie Gone Viral. Such a segment. It's from a man named Kieran Shannon who shared pictures of him and his daughter Neve at various stages of her academic life. So he's made this sort of collage of him holding her hand outside their house just before she starts school, just before, I imagine she starts sixth form college and just before, I think her graduation. And all those pictures are taken in exactly the same spot. They were posted on Twitter as part of the how it started, how it's going trend. And they have been liked Almost a million times, which he has said he is flabbergasted by. Oh, it's so moving. I'm just looking at it now. It's so lovely. It's so strange. You never really understand. I remember going to school and then going to big school and then going to sit form and then going to uni and my mum getting so emotional about it. And I never really understood it. And then now I'm at an age where my friend's babies, who I held as little babies in my arms, I'm now seeing pictures of them, you know, with big hopeful grins on their face in their school uniform standing outside the front door with their satchels on or that picture that you sent me of Zadie before nursery and it is really moving it's like such an extraordinary 
thing to bear witness to the kind of that passage of time it's really I've become so gooey as I get older I do find it very emotional I love these little backpacks it's very yeah. cute and I think these pictures are exactly what the world needs right now which is probably why it's been liked so much because it's got consistency and affection and then the simple joy of new beginnings the idea of progress yeah. which is what people are exactly. really struggling struggling with the halting of at the moment anyway I'll post it on the Hilo's Twitter so that you can all have your own gooey moment. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Less gorgeous. People are angry at M&S this week. In something of a cauliflower steak redo. I'm not going to make a guess what this is. I think so. God, I thought it was a redux. No, I don't think it's redux. <laughs> Del boy. <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to make you guess this one because I think we could be here for hours. So, M&S have been selling chip shop scraps aka delicious pieces of crispy bits of leftover batter normally on the house that you get from the chippy. M&S have been selling it in a pot for £1.05p. They've really come under fire for it. One critic dubbed them an insult to the North. I do understand why people are pissed off. M&S They're making it gentri- bougie. Making it bougie, gentrifying something that's, that shouldn't be gentrified. And also I think maybe there's something quite insulting that is making it sort of like a kitsch novelty i don't know that maybe that's kind of patronizing or something i don't know m&s get it together i mean isn't that what m&s does yeah yeah definitely that's what m&s does maybe it's if you don't like it scroll on i don't know i'm not sure i don't know how i feel about this i mean you got quite i remember you being pretty affronted by the cauliflower steak business oh i just found the nomenclature so funny but how much were they charging? They were charging a lot of money for that. They were charging two fifty. Yeah, I mean, I can see why this would piss people off. Also, why would you buy the whole point of, of like scraps that's delicious is you get them hot from the fryer and they cover your fingers in grease. You don't want to get them cold in a pot. Ugh. Yeah, this is interesting. I'd love to hear the listeners' thoughts on that because I do understand why that is mockable, but... No more mockable than a gazillion and one food trends. Please do write in because I obviously love all these food stories. And also I do love our emotional connections with food and our nostalgia and the storytelling around food. So it might be, I understand people might be pissed off about this and I would love to hear from you. Some heartwarming animal news, Panda, because it wouldn't be the high-low without it. I think you're really going to like this one. A same-sex penguin couple have become parents after the egg they adopted successfully hatched at Valencia Aquarium. The two female penguins, Electra and Viola, hatched another couple's egg. Aquarium staff placed the egg from another penguin in their nest after they appeared to be broody. Isn't that lovely? That's so lovely and really interesting because isn't it male penguins that normally, they normally insulate the egg, don't they? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Have a look. I think it's... Yeah, the emperor, isn't that fab? I'd forgotten they're emperors. Is equipped with a flap of naked skin on its abdomen called the brood pouch that protects the egg. I'm so interested in penguins being this like really progressive species. Like same sex, it's really common to have same sex couples, (laughs) couples, um, (laughs) in, um, the penguin community, and the fact that basically the male penguins do shared paternity leave. There are lots of animals where the male plays much more of a part in the rearing than the human male, historically. It's normal for a female seahorse to deposit her eggs in a male when she becomes mature. During mating, the male will pump seawater into the pouch to expand and reveal its sad emptiness to the courting female. The female, feeling very bad about his emptiness, will then deposit her eggs into the pouch. I feel like hinges people just showing their sad pouches, empty pouches. All of us just, <laughs> don't you think? I think that's such a like, metaphor for, for, for courtship. The female seahorse feeling sorry for him gives him some eggs, which he washes in sperm. Washes. I knew you'd like that story. Doll, I've got a poll for you. Do you share? New research from soft drinks brand Soda Folk 
has revealed that half of Brits believe that people are nicer now than before the pandemic. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I think we have to think about each other in a way that we probably haven't had to so much on a daily basis before. Key findings include the average Brit carries out 10 good deeds a year. Now that's interesting. I'd love to know what is defined specifically as good deed. That feels very paltry to me. 10. It's less than one a month. That depends on what you regard as a good deed. If it's something quite big, like driving someone from London to Edinburgh and back, couldn't do that every week. Yeah, this is very true. Once again, the thing that is coming under <laughs> analysis here is what this data actually means <laughs> and how it's been collected. How do you define a good deed? That's what Phoebe Buffay struggled with, didn't she? Is there such a thing as a completely altruistic good deed? Because it's a good deed, you know, doing some shopping for your elderly neighbour. Yeah, or... that's a good deed. No, but I think you should be doing that more. Well, it's not should. Anyone can do whatever the fuck they want. But I think they must be talking about bigger things than that. To be doing 10 things a year. Well, I've read on and actually it's not quite half believe we've become kinder as a nation. It's 48%. And we know, boy, we know that 48% or even 49% is not half of the population. Yes, we do know that. Believe we've become kinder as a nation during the pandemic. Over half, 53%, admit to lying about doing a good deed to make themselves feel better. Lol. Uh, 68% feel they could have or should do more to help others during the current climate. So I was flicking through Lauren Duca, who's the young political journalist in America who wrote an article for Teen Vogue in 2017 about how Trump was gaslighting America that went super, super viral and started all sorts of conversations about gaslighting. Um, she kind of introduced or reintroduced the term. Anyway, she's written a book which is about to come out in the UK. It's already out in the US called How to Start a Revolution, Young People and the Future of American Politics. Anyway, anyway, the bit that's particularly interesting I thought to this is that, and I wanted to know what you thought, is she said, you can't be a good person without being a good citizen. I think I do agree with that. Goodness is about servicing people that you don't know as well as caring for the people who you do. Yeah, I agree with that. Maybe write in and tell us, do you do you agree with Phoebe Buffet that there is no such thing as a selfless good deed? Do you believe you've cracked it? Do you believe you've done a selfless good deed? Love to know. Just a side note, it's come quite LBC, this podcast episode today. I quite like it. Do you ever listen to LBC? No, never. So I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. It's just... It's just full of these like mad phone-ins. I, I, I was in a cab the other day. The cab driver was playing LBC and it was James O'Brien. And I oh, couldn't yeah. believe as I, was, as I was getting into the car, I just heard. So the big question today is, can you feel physical pain in your internal organs? We've got Harriet online too, who's going to tell us a fact about livers. <laughs> and then this woman just rang in to say how you can feel pain in your liver. And she was qualified because her sister was a nurse. This went on for about 40 minutes. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly like the high-low. <laughs> it's exactly like the high-low. And I do think you can feel pain in your uh, internal organs. In the mailbag this week, we had lots of people sharing their thoughts on social media off the back of our discussion of the Netflix film, The Social Dilemma. Many of you sharing your own stories of struggling to find healthy boundaries with social media usage. One listener pointed out that where the documentary and subsequent discussions fall short is by pulling focus away from the corporate and the systemic. They write, we cannot put responsibility towards individuals, especially young ones, to cure their own addictions while a massive industry is driving them in order to gain profit. I think what the documentary failed to show or suggest were ways to regulate these platforms and not their use. There needs to be a social media that serves actual human connection or entertainment and not feed into addiction and through that into big monopolies pockets. Very important. I totally agree with that point about young people and not putting responsibility on on them to create all their own boundaries and cure their addictions. Because the decision-making and self-control part of the brain is not fully developed until the end of adolescence. Aren't there now as well, like movements 
to change the kind of official age of adulthood to 25. Oh, I did not know that. No, I haven't heard that. I was actually thinking about it again just yesterday because I booked a ticket to Kew Gardens and it's now you pay for an adult ticket if you're over 25. God, what a nice day out. How civilised. Yeah, I'm going to find the Gruffalo. <laughs> on, <laughs> on your own? <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously, that's something to do on your own. Um, but that is something we didn't really talk about. I agree, the monetization It's something Jerron Lanier talks about in 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. I think that's the title. Where he describes our body being used like a rental property with social media companies sort of brokering deals with advertisers using mm. the fleshy mass of us, really. Ooh. Incidentally, because I know we talked about that book last week and I sort of feel like a fraud to pretend I read it because I actually listened to a summary of it on Blinkist. I lost my Blinkist mm. virginity this week. Mm, I've never used it. Well, I was. I wanted to know what you thought about it actually because I sort of can't decide if it's the best thing ever or the most depressing thing ever or, as I suspect, is it neither? Is it just really useful for people who want a thesis or a polemic condensed? But shouldn't be used to replace engaging with yeah I think probably that's what it is because sometimes when people listen to something as an audiobook they go sorry I haven't actually read it I listened to it on an audiobook and I'm like no that counts you put in the man hours mm. but Blinkist I re- you really can't claim to have read it because it does so it obviously only does non-fiction and it breaks it down into blinks so the 10 so it works quite well with Jerron's books it's 10 reasons why you should delete your social media so it's like blink one Blink too. So the only thing is you do have to really like the narrator, but then maybe that's always the issue with audiobooks. I've actually mm. never listened to an audiobook. I know, that's insane. So I wouldn't know. Maybe that is always a big factor. Have you listened to your own audiobook? No, but I read that, so I know what it sounds... Actually, I don't know what it sounds like. I do I do not recommend. It's a horrible experience. Not, sorry, not your audiobook. That's a gorgeous experience, as in listening back to your own audiobook in your voice. Not a treat. Also, did you see that a listener replied to tell us what Bruce Springsteen fans are called? Yes, thank you for letting us know. They're called tramps. So a listener and Springsteen fan informed us that his fans are called tramps based on this line, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. We also had a lot of emails from listeners with their reflections on Chrissy Teigen sharing the story of the loss of her baby Jack. One listener wrote this in response to our thoughts on people's judgment veiled as concern, writing that while she thought it was really important that miscarriage is better understood in terms of medical research and in terms of how we look after and treat those who have suffered a loss, we also have to look at how sharing might be uh, detrimental to the progress of someone as much as it is cathartic. To share such a deeply distressing and personal moment in your life within hours of it happening may either be cathartic or detrimental. To deal with the indescribable feelings of numbness, loss, confusion, heartbreak, I could go on. And then to have to deal with the faceless comments left by those making judgment, offering hollow support or seen as clickbait just intensifies the incredibly difficult road ahead. And as always, any unkind or unhelpful comments are the ones that stay with you. My concern is not that information like this shouldn't be shared. It is vital that it is, but that for grieving parents, the timing of this is essential to their recovery. I really wanted to get a professional point of view on this. Um, I think it's quite a complex matter. And I worried about us just responding to that letter just as people with no professional experience. So I reached out to the grief psychotherapist and founder of Child Bereavement UK, Julia Samuel. She's the author of the acclaimed grief works and This Too Shall Pass, her most recent book, which I was lucky to interview her about earlier this year for my podcast series, Doing It Right. Julia wrote in response to the letter that we received. What a complex issue, she writes, and obviously there is no clear-cut answer. It is an intensely subjective and personal experience and no one has the right to criticise what someone does. But when I am asked what is likely to be most helpful for them, 
On the whole, I agree with the letter that was sent to you. The need to shout their pain from the rooftops is valid and important, and burying it secretly inside oneself is often harmful. But for the first step, I encourage people to write to people they know and trust, who they will reliably get a sensitive and loving response from. And then quite a few weeks later, when the pain will be more intense as their shock and numbness lessen, but when they have had more time to fully reflect on all that they feel. Ideally, with their partner, they would post something that is honest and raw and raises awareness, but that with the passing of time, so I would hope that by then, and importantly, they have their support networks in place, so they're better able to surf any negative judgmental comments. When babies die, there are no memories. So the time between the death and the funeral is the only crucial time that they have with their baby to create those memories, which they will go back to a million times in the weeks and months ahead. And what they do and don't do can either support them or derail them in their grieving process. Putting their energy in viral spaces is best used further down this long, tough road. That is such an interesting and empathic response from Julia Samuel. And I'm so enormously grateful to her for giving us a professional psychotherapist's point of view here. I wanted to share a piece of writing that was published on CNN this week by the journalist Alex King in reaction to this story. In it, she briefly shares her personal story of how in the space of a year she endured three miscarriages while it seemed everyone around her was, was getting pregnant and having babies. Then she goes on to talk about how when the trauma overtook her and she couldn't help but share her experiences with people, she discovered that it was a problem that was devastating so many women privately. I want to share the article because in it she talks so eloquently about her tips for how to speak to women in the grief of miscarriage, which I just think is so useful as we know it's something that's so common and yet it's something that we still have such a lack of ritual and communication around and understanding around. So I'd like to read a couple of her tips here. Do say miscarriage is as much a part of pregnancy and motherhood as having a baby. Pregnancy loss is devastatingly common. You may not think you know anyone who's had a miscarriage, but trust me, you do. An estimated one in four women will experience miscarriage, according to Tommy's, a UK charity focused on baby loss. However, many doctors I've met along the way have told me the true number in their clinical experience is much higher. My doctor told me that about 50% of women she saw at their first ultrasound did not have a viable pregnancy. Yes, 50%. Not all pregnancies end with birth and babies. They still matter. Do not say, try not to stress or stress causes miscarriage. I couldn't believe how many well-meaning people said variations of this phrase, a toxic cocktail of gaslighting and blame to me. Miscarriage is stressful, terribly so, and it can't be avoided. There is no evidence that stress causes miscarriage. Do not say it. That is very much endorsed by my midwife sister, by the way. She says that we've confused toxic stress with emotional stress, toxic stress Mm -hmm. being much rarer, and that it's toxic stress that can cause harm to a baby, for instance, being pregnant while living in a war zone where the stress response is activated 24-7. And finally, the tip that I wanted to quote, she says, do share any pregnancy news via text and acknowledge the person's experience when sharing. It won't take away from your joy. If you're pregnant, please understand that when you share your news with someone who's suffered a miscarriage, she will simultaneously feel happy for you while feeling a dagger straight to her heart. This is normal. At my lowest, a new pregnancy announcement was an ambush that could leave me sobbing under the duvet for days. On an intellectual level, I knew that the person did not have my baby, yet it still hurt so, so much. When it comes to sharing pregnancy news, texting works great. It allows the person to be able to process her emotions privately while also being able to respond with all the authentic and loving well wishes she has for you. Remember that your experience and your grieving loved ones can coexist. Say it with me one more time. Miscarriage is as much of a part of pregnancy and motherhood as having a baby. Thank you so much for sharing that piece and Alex for writing it. Support for the Hilo comes from Stripe and Stare. Comfortable, sustainable knickers and loungewear for which, and not just because the sponsor ordered, Dolly and I have been long-term fans of. In fact, like most days, today I am wearing a pair. Not only are they the most comfortable knickers in the world, they are 95% biodegradable. Using sustainably sourced beechwood fibres, Stripe and Stare's production uses 95% less water than cotton and is proven to be up to three times softer. 
As well as this truly innovative approach, Stripe and Stare have also launched a subscription service for the Undie Obsessive. Sign up and get monthly knickers delivered through your letterbox so that you too can be like Justin Bieber. I think he uh, gets new underwear very regularly. <laughs> that is the celebrity rumour. Stripe and Stare also make loungewear and nightwear, all in the same super soft, sustainable fibres, perfect for working from home. I have a tie-dyed tracksuit, which can also masquerade as a pyjama because it's quite thin, which means technically I need, nor do, ever take it off. Get yourself a 20% discount by entering high 20 high 20 online at stripeandstare.com or shop the collection at international retailers such as Shopbop, Selfridges, Bloomingdale's and Revolve. Thank you very much to Stripe and Stare. Well, speaking of talking about experiences around um, pregnancy, I wanted to recommend a column that began a couple of months ago in the Sunday Times style. Um, in fact, an entire journey that I've been following before her column came to the Sunday Times style of the journalist Sophie Barrisoner as she experienced cancer, which led to infertility, and then navigated IVF and finally surrogacy, which led her to a baby daughter born earlier this year. Sophie's column is not only humbling for anyone who conceived naturally, it's a reminder that the road to parenthood is so emotionally complex and drawn out and financially crippling for a lot of parents. But it's also a really moving, sharp and succinct contribution every week to what is often portrayed as one homogenous blob in popular culture, that of the mother. And this does not fit all image of a mother, white, straight, breastfeeding, furious, weeping, biologically related to her baby, is limiting not only to those who are not included, but to those that are, because it assumes that all mothers, as soon as this type of woman has a baby, are the same, that they like the same things, they vote for the same things, they have the same peccadilloes. Sophie really demystifies, I won't say the other mother, but even that term is becoming overused, isn't it? But she writes about her experience of becoming a mother through surrogacy, what it means not to be able to breastfeed, the politics of sharing baby pictures online and the complex nature of her motherhood. She also dedicates, and I think this is so thoughtful and necessary to, again, sort of demystify the very loaded conversations around surrogacy um, and the process of surrogacy. She also dedicates a lot of her column to the relationship she has with her surrogate, Rebecca, explaining how their relationship works, how the entire process works, which was really fascinating, I found. So I asked Sophie to read an extract of a column she wrote a few weeks ago about the complexities of her motherhood. While surrogacy makes me the more interesting person at the dinner party, I'm always trying to work out the simplest way to explain my baby daughter to the uninitiated. Before Em arrived, we'd planned to have a bit of fun with it, because in a way, it is quite funny, isn't it? Unusual, even an uncomfortable concept for some, so why not self-deprecate a little? Our surrogate Rebecca's husband, Jack, got to do the classic, oh, it's not mine when congratulated on the bump. Hilarious! And now we get to smile wryly when people say Em looks like me. She does, in a crazy way. They did a good job at the egg donor matching bank. But I'm too soaked in the glow of knowing she is mine that I don't feel the need to explain the whole thing anymore. I've forgotten why it was funny. I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Besides, the amount of times we had to go over who was who and who lived where and where baby Randall, sorry, baby Berezina would be living to the hospital discharge staff was enough to last a lifetime. I'm still not sure what's so complicated. Rebecca always responded matter-of-factly, my pregnancy, her baby. Every doctor I speak to on the phone sympathises with me. Oh, it's hard having a first baby right now. And yes, it is hard, but also it isn't. It's hard when the invisible powers that be forget to assign you a health visitor because your surrogacy status has confused them or when they send your baby's heel prick results, her personal medical information, to Mr and Mrs Randall. Shall I explain just one more time, guys? But it is undoubtedly wonderful not to have the classic new baby pressure of visitor upon visitor. 
It's nice being in the just us bubble. Everyone told me I'd relish, which I didn't believe until I was in it. When I managed to acquire myself a health visitor, I was relieved to have someone to ask about where my baby's poo lands on the normal to concerning scale. She says I should definitely consider breastfeeding to get things moving. Mm-hmm, I say through gritted teeth. Let's talk about that, shall we? Thank you so much to Sophie for reading out her column. You can follow Sophie online and read her column weekly in the Sunday Times. I will link to both of those in the show notes. I have a podcast series to recommend that I enjoyed so much. I'm now on my second listen of all the episodes and I think you're going to adore it, Panda. French and Saunders, Titting About is the (laughs) official title. It's a six-part Audible original series in which they speak on a subject for about half an hour in a sometimes personal, sometimes waffly, often very silly way. You're listening for their chemistry and for their friendship rather than anything kind of groundbreaking. Sounds familiar? Uh, But it is... (laughs) But it's such a luxurious, warm hilarious pleasurable listen it's a cliche to say it now podcast but you really do feel like you're in a room with your best and funniest friends oh I would love to listen to that I'm a real luddite with audible I find it very confusing but I'm I'm gonna have to now because I really want to listen to that the series is free but I don't know if you have to pay to be signed up to audible maybe you can get a free trial but I do know that the series itself is free So the episodes cover subjects such as seven deadly sins, holidays, school, food. It's packed with incredible anecdotes of their friendship over the years, including the perfect celebrity story where they were both having lunch together when they spotted Brad Pitt at the table next to them, having lunch with someone in the industry who they knew. And Dawn sent a note on a napkin to their friend saying, please tell Brad to come over and snog me when he leaves. And he did. Oh, my God. No, such a good story. Yeah. Uh, My favourite episode is titled If We Were Alive Now, which is them reflecting on what their work and public facing selves would be like if they were just emerging at the beginning of their careers and fame now. And uh, this clip just made me howl, which is them talking about why they'd never do Strictly Now. But but there are shows you you definitely are going to say no to, because didn't you tell me that um, Strictly Come Dancing? Oh, never. You're not going to. Never. And why? what would your reasoning be behind Can't that? Can't dance. Oh, ne- there is that. Never could dance. Of course. And do you know what? With us... No rhythm. No rhythm. Because they've, they've approached me in a circling way before. Have they? Now about it. And I, well, the problem is, if I did it, I would want to do it and properly dance. Yes, me too. I would want to be taken seriously. And you can't, at this age... No. You're not taken seriously. And also no. because if you're from comedy, they mm. want to shoot you out of a cannonball oh. like Anne oh, Widdicombe. No. And I don't and want do that. I want the happen? nicest dresses, the most elegant other dancer, and to take it seriously. And nobody would want that. No. How would you make the little background films and not be a little bit cheeky, little bit chirpy? And I would be taking it seriously. I would do it if it wasn't for the background films. Would you? If it wasn't for the, hey... We're doing like a dance and the number's all about a workplace. Let's go to a workplace. Yeah, you I go, know. I oh, know. no, please don't make me do that. I know. Please don't make me do your silly puns and your stupid and you, It's just having to get up in the morning and, and go there. skip off and... with a dancer hand in hand. I think it's got longer. Has the programme got twice as long or something? Oh, it's pathetic now. But no, the actual dum, dum, dancing dum, is Halloween not week. Hey, oh, we're slightly scared now. Oh, oh. It's massively, oh, massively and, popular. And then, oh, When they're actually gosh. dancing, I love it. I like watching it. I'm not saying I don't like watching it, Dawn Fresh. Yes, no, I understand. I have to say, being on it would make me cringe. I went to the cinema, Panda, for the first time since Little Women in January, and I loved it. I went to see On the Rocks, which I adored. It's the new Sofia Coppola film about a father and daughter played by Bill Murray and Rashida Jones. I cannot stress just how much I needed this to be my first film back at the cinema. It's so, so funny. I kept waiting for something traumatic to happen. And that's just not what this film is. It's like an absolutely perfect, hilarious sitcom episode in feature film form, all underpinned by these big themes of family and what we look for in our romantic relationships to either correct or replicate 
how our parents loved us. I've seen it be described as this kind of daddy issues film, which I think is misleading. I think that makes it sound more neurotic than it is. It's it's just a side-splittingly funny dynamic between a highly eccentric father and a daughter who go on a madcap adventure together. I think it might be my favourite Bill Murray role. I won't say any more because I don't want to give anything away of the plot. But if you need something feel good, go watch it. Chet Baker soundtrack, Manhattan skyline, pre-COVID world, two hours of escapism and lots of laughter. I've read about this film and you've made me really want to go see it now. I cannot tell you how much you will love it. It was the perfect first film back. Dolly, I have to talk to you about Emily in Paris. Oh, I knew this was coming. Went out for dinner on Friday night with the girls. It's all they want to talk about. It's Love Island all over again. Emily Cooper. Bonjour. Bonjour. I got a feeling I'm in trouble when I look at you. Uh, I'm Emily. You're a new neighbor. Enchanté. Cause once I do it, yeah, I know I'll never get enough. So, you've come to teach the French some American tricks? Never get enough. Has anyone noticed this is a very dysfunctional workplace? I think you're the one bringing the drama. I'm actually very interested in this because the thing with Emily in Paris, I will watch an episode of it because the thing I find fascinating is everyone wants to slag it off and yet everyone I know cannot stop watching it. Yeah, it's definitely had that Sex in the City uh, thing, hasn't it? So I... people, Sex in the City was kind of beloved where this is, I've never quite experienced something like this where everyone who I speak to says, oh, it's awful. And then they say they're on episode 100 or whatever. So what's going on? Have you watched it? Yeah, watch the whole series in an evening. I wasn't oh going to talk. God. So I wasn't going to talk to you about it just because I knew you'd never watch it. And I also sort of thought that what would happen with it is what happens with a lot of the other content I guzzle on Netflix when I'm really tired and I need a hug and I don't really see it as right for analysis. Chesapeake Shores um, about a uh, Nashville singer coming home after being burnt out from the road being another thing that I would uh, never talk about on the show. Basically, that kind of content that just washes over you. But Emily in Paris, as you say, has seized the world and we have had so many messages asking us to cover it. So here we are. Emily in Paris stars Lily Collins as Emily, a 22-year-old, lol, social media consultant from the Midwest who comes over to Paris to teach a fusty old luxury marketing agency how to use social media. Everyone falls in love with her. She gains 25,000 Instagram followers and becomes an influencer. So this is amazing, obviously, in itself, that an entire agency, marketing agency, would need a 22-year-old to come over from America and teach them how to use social media. Or, as many influencers have grumbled to my delight across the internet, that her extremely touristy pictures of croissant and the Eiffel Tower would have gained her 25,000 followers. <laughs> and Emily in Paris was created by Darren Starr, most famously the creator of Sex and the City. And the costumes are done by Patricia Fields, again, who did the Sex and the City costumes. And there's a very funny article in Vulture that puts it very well, I think. Darren Starr has done it yet again, centred an entire show on a thin, gently delusional white woman whimsically exploring a major metropolitan area in wildly expensive couture purchased on a mid-level salary. <laughs> I mean, Emily is Carrie Bradshaw for 2020. She wears the classic Patricia Field outfits uh, that she couldn't possibly afford, vintage Chanel in almost every single look, quite strange heels, accessories galore. But it is pretty glorious to watch that said, it did not make me furious um, in a way that you say that a lot of people are, particularly the French. And there are many, many, many things that have been written about how wrong Emily in Paris is. So this is from BuzzFeed. They do not start work at 10.30am. The men are not all creeps in Paris with yacht suntans. Any woman over the age of 40 is not an absolute bitch. Neither, thank you very much, to little dogs poo on the streets. It goes on, their plumbing is not 500 years old. A vibrator would not fuse the entire electrics of Paris. The thing is, it is, it is quite extraordinary that they thought that that depiction of Paris and French people and French culture is not only like modern and correct, but also inoffensive. Like I'm just thinking about what it would be like to watch a programme made by Americans in which an American comes over to London and everyone 
is eating eels and mash and is toothless and smells. It's just, you know, I'm just trying to think of all the like, all those really tired cliches about Londoners. It just, it's just really. But the point is these, this caricaturing of the French is often with negative effect. So it's saying it's still a culture that's incredibly misogynistic. Yes, yes. That women are horribly mean to each other, that the city isn't built in an efficient way. It's yeah. quite offensive, I suppose. And also that an American and a 22-year-old at that has to come over to kind of show yeah. them the way things are done. Also, she doesn't speak French, which obviously does not go down well. Um, so I yeah. asked Twitter, I said, come on, let rip. And oh my God, I cannot tell you how many responses I've had. I'm going to read some. I'm just going to go down my replies and read some yeah. to you. It is awful in an early noughties American teen movie way and is therefore great. Cannot understand the backlash. It wasn't intended to be serious or hard hitting. It was fun, fashion filled, and in some sense frivolous. And what is wrong with that? Addictive, won't set the world on fire, but wonderful escapism. Wonderfully terrible. Dreadful, but highly watchable. I still can't really get purchase on this. Why does everyone keep watching it if they all think it's terrible? Is it the clothes? Do you think it's just because I love Pat Field's styling? Is it that people just, it's Paris, it's pretty, people like watching the clothes? I didn't even actually enjoy the clothes that much. I just enjoyed, there was like a, there was like a fit guy in it. There was some flirting. Uh, there was like a funny, you know, marketing agency. Terrible, but gorgeous. Problematic. Candy floss. Problematic candy floss. That's a real genre of culture, isn't it? I don't know what kind of agency is where they don't have a proper social media team or any brand strategies whatsoever. (laughs) Difficult to enjoy even as a hate watch. The depiction of the French is xenophobic. The racial politics are awful. It's a completely whitewashed imagining of Paris that ignores the North African diaspora. I would agree with that. It looks a very different Paris to how it looks if you actually go. I think I do have to watch a bit just to see what what has created that very strange chemistry of everyone loathing it and everyone being addicted to it. I also want to recommend this week's episode of Desert Island Discs. There's been such a good run of interviews recently on Desert Island Discs. Samantha Morton's episode was extraordinary. Her journey is awe-inspiring and how she managed to become one of the most respected and revered actors of our time as a working-class woman with a fairly traumatic beginning and all the odds stacked against her, getting into an industry as middle-class and, and inaccessible and, and undiverse as acting. It's, it's just such a fascinating story. You can listen to that wherever you listen to your podcast and it's actually a longer episode than the one that was broadcast. It's really moving really, really recommend it. But it's this week's episode that I wanted to talk about, who was Floella Benjamin, a Trinidadian British author, actor, TV presenter, businesswoman and politician and former Chancellor of Exeter, my old university. So this obviously had a bit of a personal aspect for me. She was Chancellor when I was a student there and everyone at Exeter absolutely adored Floella Benjamin And you can understand why in this episode. She has a unique positivity and sunshiny energy that is so infectious. It beams out of the radio. And she speaks in this episode about how on graduation day, when she was chancellor at Exeter, she refused to shake hands with the students and she hugged every single one. So these incredibly long graduation ceremonies that she was famous for. And I remember I walked on stage She gripped me in a huge hug, held me by the shoulders and said, go make your mark on the world. And she did that to every single Exeter graduate. She said something personal to them. And then she and her rock band uh, played at the graduate ball and she absolutely brought the house down. (laughs) Sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She's one in a million, this woman. And I really do think that kind of energy that's communicative and unfussy and informal and open-hearted is so important to disperse through British institutions that are often so in desperate need of modernisation and, you know, a human touch. And 
that's what she's done, whether she's working at the top of university or she's in the House of Lords or she's meeting the Queen or she's campaigning to change legislation. Her episode of Desert Island Discs is full of these stories and you really get a sense that she's someone who makes things happen and does so with immense passion. I want to play a clip in which she reflects on the racism she endured as a child in Beckenham and how there was a surreal moment that happened later in life that made her think of that time. When I first came to Britain, I found that my parents were living in one room and so all eight of us lived in one room. But my mum used to say, this room is full of love and we're together as a family. We're going to make the most of it. Then we moved to Penge, where we had two rooms, and then we moved to Annerley, where we had a house. And then we moved to Beckenham. My mum said, let's upgrade. But when we went to view this house on a Sunday afternoon, about 2.30 on a Sunday afternoon, we're all excited about which room we're going to have. And there was a garden because my mum was a great gardener. And we suddenly heard, da-da-da-da-da-da. We looked out of the window and saw police. There were police in the streets, motorbikes, panda cars, black mariahs. And the neighbours had called up the police to say black people were stealing the fixtures and fittings. So they came to arrest us. <laughs> the first policeman to arrive was on a motorbike. And when he saw us, he told the other ones, it's all right, all right, I'll deal with this one. And it turned out that he was married to a Ghanaian doctor. And the same thing had happened to her when she went to look at a house. So he understood the situation and we, we got friendly with him, became f- friends with him. But my mum said, you know something, we're going to buy this house. We're going to live in this house. And she lived there for 40 years. And uh, in fact, she died in that house of bowel cancer. That's why I'm the patron of bowel cancer. Yeah. And she and my dad, my dad died a year before she did. And they're both buried in Beckenham Cemetery. So I went to the cemetery when I uh, became a baroness. And I said, mommy, daddy, I'm going to claim Beckenham for you. I'm going to call myself Baroness Benjamin of Beckenham. There, it's yours. (laughs) What an incredible woman. I'm definitely going to listen to that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hilo. You can write to us by emailing thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com, where 100% of proceeds go to charity, 50% to Freedom Charity and 50% to Black Minds Matter. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye-bye-bye.